Well, good morning, everybody. So great to see you today. I want to welcome you to Creed, our series where we have together been exploring uh, the heart, the core of our faith by walking through that historic statement of Christian belief known as the Apostles' Creed. And I wonder this morning if any of you remember Justine Sacco's story. It made worldwide headlines in December 2013. She was a 30-year-old senior director of corporate communications at an internet media corporation, and she was about to board a plane to travel from New York City to South Africa. She was going to visit family for the holidays, and she began just kind of casually tweeting to the less than 200 people who followed her, just joking about the indignity of travel. And on her flight from New York to London, she tweeted about a, a German man with a body odor who was up in first class with her and, uh, you know, how she's going to have to spend this next six hours in the air, um, you know, with him. And then when she landed, she, she said she was in London, the home of cucumber sandwiches and bad teeth. And, uh, and then right before her 11-hour flight uh, took off to South Africa, she tweeted that she was heading to Africa. She made a joke about AIDS and about how in her whiteness she wouldn't get AIDS. And then she turned her phone off and the plane took off and she went to sleep. And while she slept, her tweet went viral. By the time she landed in South Africa, the, her tweet was trending number one in the world. She turned on her phone and the first text she got was from an old high school friend she hadn't heard from in years who said, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. And she had no idea what this meant. And then her phone just exploded and her life blew up. She was fired from her job. The hotel she had booked for her trip wouldn't uh, let her stay there because the employees were boycotting. Her life was threatened. And oh, by the way, Justine was born in South Africa. Her family had spent their lives there working with Nelson Mandela's African National Congress fighting apartheid, uh, pushing back the darkness of racism, and their lives were threatened too. And I, I, I don't in any way want to minimize the, the foolishness of posting some of the things that she did on the web. I mean, I would say she shouldn't have said those things, but she also didn't deserve death threats. She also didn't deserve losing her job and her career and having to move and, and actually hide for years. Justine Sacco was actually one of the earliest, maybe most prominent victims of what we all know now as cancel culture, which has just continued to grow and, uh, and, and magnify for years now. And it's kind of an interesting thing when you think about that. Uh, in our justice system, public shaming doesn't exist. We don't do that. But yet, the rule of the human heart is that we still love to see others get punished. We love to watch that. We live in an age where outrage is all the rage, right? It's like everyone is looking for something to be furious at. News outlets, social media, blogs, and podcasts are so very often just built around this. What are we gonna be angry about today, right? You know, you make a mistake in the public sphere and, and so many stand ready just to burn your life to the ground. And we, we get on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and we lose sight of the fact that all of us, all of us, right, we're fallible people. We make mistakes and we do that often, right? 
And of course, as followers of Christ, we believe there should be repercussions when we do wrong, but so often in our culture, there's no grace, there's, there's no willingness to offer someone any benefit of the doubt. So we take what's said or what's done and we make it viral and we fan the flames of hate and, and division and anger. We, we, we participate, even enjoy dismantling people's lives, even when the punishment doesn't fit the crime because there's something satisfying to the human soul about stuff like this, punishing other people. And I think you would recognize what I'm about to say, that for us, for Jesus' people, these things should not be. Now, I think it's no accident that the line in the creed that we are studying today, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, follows right after I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. And we'll explain more what I mean by that in a moment. But with that in mind, would you stand with me as we say the Apostles' Creed together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And you may be seated. So today, uh, we are talking about the forgiveness of sins. And to help us understand this doctrine, I I want us to take a a look, an in-depth look, at a very familiar story Jesus told, a story that, quite frankly, is very often misunderstood. It's in Luke chapter 15. And we're gonna read the introduction to this chapter, which sets the scene, and then we're gonna read this parable that Jesus told. So beginning of verse one of chapter 15 in Luke, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Picking it up in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Now in our natural human state, we don't understand forgiveness. We, we really do have a deep need to learn from Jesus' story here about what forgiveness is and, and what it isn't. And I, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for many of the ideas in this message. His, his book, The Prodigal God, is just phenomenal. I know some of you have, have read it. It's, it's just a great book. And, and he talks about what I think we would all recognize, how this is one of Jesus' most famous parables. This is maybe the most famous, and you've probably heard this story dozens, of, maybe even hundreds of times because it's just such a great story. And it's actually the kind of story, because it's so familiar, that a lot of people like us tend to skim over because we think we know it. And we, we think we've heard it all before. And here's the biggest misconception, I'll tell you right off the bat. Many of us think that this is a story that's just about people who are far from God. It's a story about God's unconditional, lavish love and grace for rebels. And so some of us think, well, that's not really quite me, so it's really not quite for us. And if you think that, I wanna caution you today. I wanna suggest to you that one of the surest signs that you may not get the radical, um, utterly unique nature of the gospel is that you're sure that you do. This story is unbelievably, incredibly radical, and if you grasp it, it will just turn upside down so many things that we take for granted, things we often believe without even stopping to think about them. See, for centuries, this parable has been called the, the parable of the, what? Prodigal son. The son. That's not the best title for it. We miss Jesus' teaching about forgiveness if we think it's a story about one son because Jesus starts by saying there were two sons. There was a younger and an older brother. And so Jesus tells this story to us to compare and contrast them. And if we don't do that the way Jesus wants us to, we're gonna miss the radical message of his parable. 
And Jesus is just saying this. He's just saying that every thought, every thought the human race has ever had about how to connect to God, whether it's in the East or the West, whether it's ancient or modern or even postmodern eras, in every religion, in all secular thought, every thought has been wrong. Every human idea of how we connect with God is wrong. And Jesus really comes, he comes just to shatter all of our human categories. Do you know, and it's kind of hard for us to get this, but, but when Christianity first arose, no one called it a religion. You've heard me say this before, the Romans, the Romans called Christians atheists. And they did that because what they heard Christians saying about God was so different from any other religion, they thought it had to be something else. And I think Jesus' story here shows why they were right. Now, we're gonna unpack this story, kind of work our way through it, and then I want you to see three ideas that Jesus wants us to grasp, and then we're gonna look at our our four categories of clarity and balance and counsel and reorientation. So so here's the story. The story has two acts. Act one is about the lost younger brother. And you'll notice that act one begins with a shocking request. The youngest brother comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. And what you need to know is that this would have astounded Jesus' original hearers. They, they wouldn't have believed that this was actually happening. Now, in that day, if you had two sons, when you died, the estate would have been divided in two ways, and two-thirds would have gone to the older brother, one-third to the younger brother, because the custom of the day was that the oldest child, the oldest son, would get twice what everyone else got. But that was supposed to happen after the father died. See, when the son asked for his share of the estate now, that was what was astounding because in that culture, his request was like saying to his father's face, I wish you were dead. I want it now. He's just telling his father, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. He's showing that his relationship with his father is is transactional, not personal. And Jesus' hearers would have gasped in disbelief. You can't say that to your father. No one would ever do that. But then the father's response in Jesus' story is even more unbelievable. Scholars say that the, the hearers would have expected any Middle Eastern father to throw his father out of the house with verbal violence, if not physical violence. But this father, he doesn't do that. Jesus said, so he divided his property among them. And the, the Greek word for property is the word bios, and you recognize we get our word biology from that. And it's just telling us the father divided his life among them. Most of us, you know, in suburbia have a hard time understanding the relationship people in this time had to their land. Some of you maybe have grown up in Tracy and you have more connection uh, to agriculture and things. Maybe you get this. But in their time, the father's estate was his land and his wealth was his land. And so to give his son his inheritance, he had to sell off a third of his land. And his identity was bound up in the land. And, you know, to lose your land was to lose yourself. It, it was going to mean the father would lose standing in the community because that was tied to how much land you had. And it was just, it was an unthinkable social insult what this son was asking. 
He's asking his father to tear his life apart. And he does. It was also an unthinkable personal insult. The son is rejecting his father. But notice, the father doesn't reject the son. He just keeps loving him. Verses 13 through 16 tell us the son leaves. He, he squanders the, the, the inheritance he's received. And then a famine comes and he has nothing left. And he's just living like a slave. He's feeding pigs, which was unspeakably degrading for a Jewish man. One day, verse 17 tells us, he comes to his senses and he sees how foolish he has been and he, he makes a plan. And so scene two in act one is the son's plan. He first of all says, he realizes that he's been so stupid, he's gonna go home to his father and confess to him. But, but notice the other part of his plan in verses 18 and 19. He says, I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now you need to notice that last phrase. He's not asking to be a slave. See, a slave would have worked and lived on the estate, but a hired man was a craftsman who who had apprenticed and learned a, a trade, learned a skill, and therefore he would receive a wage. And so most scholars think that what this young man was doing was really very simple. The rabbis taught that if you'd violated the community mores, the only way back into the community was you make restitution. And so what the son is probably saying is like this, Father, if you will apprentice me to one of your hired men and teach me a craft, I know I cannot be your son anymore. I know I can't come back into the family, but at least this way I can try my best to pay you back. It's the least I can do after all I've done to you. So he has a plan. But in verse 20, it's the final scene of Acts chapter one. The father sees him far off, and this is so significant, the father runs. Because Middle Eastern patriarchs, they did not run. Children ran. Mothers may have run. But, but not fathers, not owners of estates, but this father runs some scholars have observed that this father acts a little more like a mother than a father here. He, he doesn't try to hold on to his social dignity. He reveals his emotions. He embraces, he kisses his son. And you notice, as we read it, the son tries to roll out the restitution plan, but his father won't hear it. He cuts him off. And in verse 22, final scene of act one, we see that the father celebrates. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe would have been the father's robe. And this is what he's saying. Do you hear it? Do you see it? I'm not gonna wait for you to clean your life up. I'm not waiting for you to prove yourself. I'm receiving you back as my son now. He says to his servants, cover my son's nakedness and his rags with the robe of my honor we are going to feast. Son of mine, you are not gonna earn your way back into the family. I am bringing you back now. It's incredible, isn't it? That brings us to Act 2, and we would simply title it The Lost Older Brother. And I hope you see that, because it may not have been what you thought. When the older brother hears about this, he's and I want you to know, I want you to see, he's especially angry about the cost. 
Now, that may not be quite as obvious to us as it will be in a moment, but did you notice what a big deal the calf is? The calf, the calf, the calf. In verses 26 and 27, the older brother asks the servant, what's going on? And the, the servant says, your younger brother is back and your father gave him the calf. And in the verses 28 and 29, the older brother comes to his father and says, you gave him a calf? You know, why is he so mad about the calf? Well, the background is simply this. Back then, uh, meat was really uh, scarce. It was a delicacy. That meant it was expensive, right? And, And the greatest delicacy, the most expensive possible thing that you could do was to kill a fattened calf. This is the kind of thing where the whole village would have been there. It was the sort of thing that most families would never do for a private party. It was incredibly expensive. Therefore, the older brother is saying, how dare you use our wealth for this? I have obeyed you. I should have had some say in this. He's angry about the cost. In other words, Father, I have rights over your things. And then we next see that he insults his father. In verse 29, he, he doesn't respectfully address him as father. He says, look. Have you ever said that to someone you were mad at him? How many of you have ever said, look to someone when you were mad at them? God is watching. Do you, you, you hear you hear the insult that is there. It's, the, you know, it's a deliberate insult. He doesn't address his father as father. He's basically saying, look, you. Look, you. So we see him. He's, he's publicly humiliating his father by not entering into the greatest feast his father's ever thrown. He makes his father come out to him He publicly humiliates him by refusing to call him father, but notice what the father does. Notice his tenderness. In verse 31, he uses a very tender word. He says, my son, and it could be translated, the Greek word could be translated, my child. My child. He says, I still want you in the feast. You know, almost every father I know would have disowned you already for what you have just done, but I still want you in. And it's kind of like, as we're reading this, we're kind of on the edge of our seats, and we're all, you know, as we hear Jesus tell this story, asking the question, is the family gonna come together? Are they gonna be united in unity and love? You know, will this other brother finally respond? Will they make everything right? And did you notice, did it occur to you, Jesus just ends the parable? He just leaves us hanging, right? He doesn't tell us what happens, which causes us to ask, why? What's Jesus trying to teach us? Well, I think that Jesus is telling us three things in particular, and they are so radical. He makes three radical redefinitions, and the first one is, and most briefly is this, Jesus redefines God he defines him as a father. Now, it's been a while last fall, but we, we talked earlier in this series about the importance of the fatherhood of God. We talked about how so many people, maybe many of you, struggle with this concept that God is a father. I just want to remind you, this was Jesus' name for God. And he was the, the first person to ever address God as father in this way. And every single time in the Bible that Jesus addresses God, he calls him father except for one. 
And this was something new. In the Old Testament, uh, God was referred to as Father, but just rarely, not very much. But Jesus lifts this up and he, he defines here what he means when he calls God Father. And again, maybe you struggle with this. Maybe because your father was abusive. Some of you struggle with this because your father was distant and maybe harsh or he was selfish. You know, our culture right now, we're living in a moment where 21st century American culture tends to say that an idea of God like this as father is, you know, patriarchal. People say, really, honestly, I don't like it because fathers are hard and it's about power and control. It's about condemnation. It's about domination. I want a loving God. I want a sensitive and forgiving God. And do you know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is showing us a father unlike any father of that time. His, his emotional abandonment, his generosity, his willingness to forgive being rejected. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm sorry, I am sorry. I know that a lot of you have had fathers like that, but my father is not like that. For all his power and all his majesty, he's always a loving and tender and patient and gracious and merciful father. He longs for your love and he wants to show you his love. See, Jesus, he brought together traits that no one else brought together, attributes. He, he brought together the meekness and the majesty of God, the power and the, the patience of God. He said that's who God is. He's all powerful and all loving, all at the same time. And no one had ever described God in that way. I mean, I hope you won't miss this just because you've heard it so many times. It is incredibly radical. No one in all history had ever taught anything like this. And here's the real question. Please focus for a moment. The question that I want you to ask yourself, do you believe this? And what I'm really asking to make it more clear is does your heart believe this? I think almost all of us would believe it with our minds. We know it's what the Bible says, so we agree with it. But do you believe it in your heart? Do you live truly each day with a loving, heavenly Father? Jesus, second, redefines sin. And we really see the brilliance of Jesus' storytelling uh, in the first act, the younger brother act. Jesus gives us a picture of sin, and it's, it's kind of the standard traditional view of sin, right? Sins of the flesh, it's partying and prostitutes. You end up in the pigsty, right? That's what sin is. But then in the second act, he turns the table, and by the end of the second act, here's what we see. There are two sons, and one of them is very, very good, and one is very, very bad, and both of them are alienated from the father's heart. And each one of them, in their own way, wanted the father's things, but not the father himself. Each one of them, listen, listen, they used the father to get what they really loved. They didn't really love the father, they used him to get the status and the wealth and the, the comfort, those things they really, really wanted. And one of them did it, notice, by being good. And one of them did it by being very bad. 
You see, they're both lost. One is lost in his badness. One is lost in his goodness. And in the end, Jesus turns the table and it's the bad son that's saved and it's the good son, as far as we know, that's lost. And that kind of goes against everything most of us have ever believed, right? The lover of prostitutes is saved and the obedient son is lost. It actually gets worse than that. Because when you see why the good son was lost, he was lost not in spite of his goodness, he was lost because of his goodness. I mean, he, he actually says it, he, he admits it. He says, why, I'm not gonna go into your feast, dad. He says, here's why I reject you, father. I've never disobeyed you, never. You see, it's not his sins that are keeping him from the Father. It's his goodness. He is so proud of his goodness. It's his righteousness that's keeping him from the Father. Do you remember the first verses we read, the very beginning, verse, verses at the beginning of the chapter, how, how Luke tells us there were two different groups of people uh, around Jesus when he told these parables. There were the tax collectors and the sinners, and then there were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And when you read that and you look at this story, all of a sudden you begin to realize who these two sons in the parable are. The sinners, they're the younger brother. They live how they want. But the Pharisees, the religious teachers, the religious people, they're the older brother. And and Jesus is lifting up for us to see uh, the two basic ways that human beings always try to make themselves right in God's eyes to connect with God. It's always either moral conformity or self-discovery. Moral conformity says, I won't do what I want. I'll comply, I'll obey, I'll submit, I'll work hard. Self-discovery says, I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. I'll do what I wanna do. I'll live how I wanna live. I'll find my true self. And both kinds of people say, this is how you're happy. And Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're both lost. You're both making the world a terrible place, just in different ways. See, the older brothers of the world divide the world into two. The the good people are in, the bad people are out. The younger brothers, they say, the open-minded, progressive, you know, uh, welcoming people are in, and the bigoted, judgmental people, they're out. Have you noticed in our culture today, it's so interesting how often the people who say you should never judge are the most judgmental people of all while they're calling out all the judgy people. They get so angry at the judgmental people. They judge them. You know, it's like, I thought we weren't supposed to do that. Well, it's just the human heart. It's just... Your heart, my heart, it's all of our hearts. Jesus is saying neither way is right. Jesus is saying the humble are in and the proud are out. Jesus is saying it's the people who know they're not good and need grace who are in. And the people, it's the people who think they're on the right side of whatever social divides, they're out. See, the gospel of Jesus 
is not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not moralism or relativism. It's not somewhere halfway in the middle. It's like off the scale, off the charts. It is something totally different. And now you begin to see what Jesus is saying about sin. Now you see how different this is because he's really saying when you get down to it, there are two ways to be your own savior. Two ways to be your own savior Just like there's two ways to try to get control of your father's stuff. See, one son, he he tried to get the father's stuff, not by loving the father, but by using the father, by living a bad life. But the other son did the same thing. He tried to control the father's stuff by living a good life. It's the same thing when you get to the bottom. See, in one way, you call the shots. You live how you want In the other way, you are externally very moral, religious. You're maybe reading the Bible, obeying the Ten Commandments. Maybe you're praying a lot. It's kind of interesting in our culture when you stop to look around, there's actually kind of a secular version of this thing. You know, people who say, you know, a lot of them will say they're not religious, but they like to say they're spiritual. And they may not have any formal faith, but what they believe you should do And everyone should do this as you should take the correct political positions. You should care about the environment and practice the sacrament of recycling. You know, you should post the right things on your social media and put bumper stickers on your car. And as you do it, all you're doing, so many people are doing this as they are trying to establish their righteousness. They're trying to be their own savior. Just a different way of doing it. See, one of the mistakes I think that people today make when they read this story is they think that older brothers are only conservatives because we like to import our categories. They, They think, as they read this, that more liberal people never do this, but they do, just in different ways. See, whenever you're trying to be your own savior, it doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, left or right, you're an older brother. Flannery O'Connor in her novel, Wise Blood, described one of her characters like this. She said, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. She nailed older brotherness. You know what she's saying? She's saying, if you think, I mean, if I love people and I'm good and I pray and I read my Bible, then God has to bless me. And I know, I know, I know some of you believe that. Because I've believed that. If you do that, if you think that, then Jesus He might be your example. He might be your rewarder. He might be a lot of things, but he is not your savior. You are your own savior. You're you're avoiding Jesus as savior by avoiding sin. You're trying to control God through what you're doing and all your morality and all your obedience is a way to get God to give you what you really want and it is not God himself. You can think about it this way. Religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people obey God to get God, to know him, to love him, to take the light in him. And and as you begin to think about it, you can see why older brother lostness and younger brother lostness are both terrible. 
The younger brother lostness with its self-indulgence and addiction, it just brings so much misery into the world. But older brother lostness, you can see it. I mean, look at the judgmentalism. Look at the anger. He's always angry. Why is he so angry? Because he's lived a good life. And the father owes him. And you know, since... (laughs) You know, since your life never, never ever, except maybe for a few years here and there, it never ever goes the way you want. Have you noticed that? Since that is true, if you're living a good life and you think I deserve a good life, you will always be living with this undercurrent of anger. You'll always be looking down at other people. You'll always be kind of mad at God. That's why Jesus really says and shows that religion is the source of so much misery and strife in the world. And it all comes down to our motivation. Why do you obey? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Do you obey out of the love for the Father? Or do you obey what you want to get, to get what you want in life? See how our motivation can be totally changed so that we're, we're not saying like the older brother, you know, that he's slaving away. We're not saying that, but we're obeying and serving out of love and gratitude. That brings us to the last thing. Jesus redefines salvation. In the Bible, it teaches, and Jesus is showing here that it's all about grace. It's nothing about our goodness because we don't have any. Say, I don't have any goodness. We don't. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. Read the passage in Romans chapter three. And when you begin to see this, you can see that Christianity, true Christianity, cannot ever divide the world into good and bad people because moral conformity and social or self-discovery never go deep enough. And the reason is this, the default mode of every human heart. Say, my heart. Every human heart, whether it's moral or immoral, whether it's religious or secular, whether you're following self-discovery or moral conformity, the default mode of your heart, my heart, every heart is self-justification. Being your own savior. That's what sin's about. And so neither self-discovery or moral conformity go deep enough to get at what's wrong with the world and with us. So the question is, how can we be saved? See, the Bible says this very clearly, that salvation, which is the receiving the forgiveness of sins, means trusting in the gospel, that we are sinners. We can never save ourselves, but Jesus did everything necessary by dying on the cross, paying for our sins, and rising from the dead, thereby defeating death and sin and shame. And because of this is true, then we quit working We just trust. We just receive. Now to unpack this further uh, with the rest of our message, we're gonna look at clarity and balance and counsel and reorientation as we close and prepare uh, for the Lord's table, which we will be celebrating in a few moments. So how do we kind of wrap these things up? Well, clarity, we get clarity from this story on Religion versus the gospel. Jesus' parable just gives us clarity about what it means to have our sins forgiven. We, we see these two different ideas about how we relate to God and how God relates to us. Religion says it's about our goodness like the older brother, but the gospel says it's about God's grace. God's grace. And we really do see that in the Father. 
I hope you'll go back and you'll, you'll read this parable again and just kind of let it soak in. Did you notice did you notice that it's the father who goes out to both sons to bring them in? With the younger brother, did you notice he kisses the younger brother before he repents? In other words, repentance doesn't trigger the kiss. The kiss facilitates repentance. And some of you, here's the word for you today. Some of you are trying to clean it up before God will accept you. You need to accept God's grace now. That's what will clean you up. Stop trying to earn your salvation. You're, you're never, you're never, you're never gonna seek him apart from him first seeking you. And I just wanna ask, I wanna ask some of you this question. Is he seeking you right now? Could that be why you're feeling the way you're feeling right now? That God He's tapping you on the shoulder. He's tugging at your heart. He's calling your voice, calling you with his voice. He's calling your name. Will you listen? Will you repent? Will you receive? Will you turn? See, that's, that's the gospel. But again, it's not just the younger brother. The father goes out to the older brother. And this is amazing because when you think about it, who's Jesus telling the story to? He's telling the story to Pharisees. And Jesus knows, he knows it's the religious people who are gonna kill him. He knows that. And yet, and yet he has his father, the father in his story, go out and bleed with the Pharisee to come in. You might put it this way. Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He's not self-righteous about the self-righteous. Ever notice, like I said earlier, ever notice how some people are Pharisees about Pharisees? All judgment, no grace. I mean, like, has anybody noticed how divisive our nation is right now? You know, the culture is, and kind of like we fight about everything, politics, have you noticed how the red states think the blue states are the problem? And have you noticed how the blue states think the red states are the problem? Jesus is saying through this story, you're all the problem. He's saying, you're all the problem, and I love you. See, the gospel is we're all sinners. We cannot save ourselves. We're only saved by God's grace. That's the gospel. That's clarity. Well, balance. Balance is we need to learn to repent of our goodness as well as our badness. And some of you just thought, what? Notice that the youngest brother has a lot of sins to repent of. And most of us say, you know, well, that's how you get right with God. You like, you repent of your list. You got a list, you got a list. Everybody's got a list, right? I mean, you know the stuff you've done that you shouldn't be doing, stuff you used to do that you still feel bad about. You got a list, you got a list, you got to repent of your list. But this parable is so radical. Do you see? The older brother is lost without anything on his list. He says to his father, I've always obeyed you. And the father doesn't, contradict him so how does a person who's lost with no sins on his list get saved see of course 
we know. The Bible's so clear, there is no such thing as a sinless person. We, we know that, but here's the point. You know, when Pharisees sin, they feel terrible about their sins, but you know, when they're done repenting, they, they're still Pharisees, and the difference between a true believer, follower of Christ, and a moralist is this. Christians repent of what they've done wrong, but Christians also have learned to repent for the reasons they do right. See, to live in the gospel, to live in the light of the gospel means I not only repent for what I've done wrong, but I learn to recognize that sometimes part of why I do what is right is my sinful, fleshly desire to justify myself, to show other people that I'm good, to try to control God so he will give me what I want. And you will never go very far with the Lord until you begin to understand that and work on that. See, it's when, it's when we see that tendency that all of us have, every single one of us, that we have this drive to establish our own righteousness by doing good. It's when we learn to repent of that that we truly experience forgiveness. It's all by God's grace and it changes everything. It changes the way you relate to God. It changes the way you handle criticism. It changes the way you criticize other people. It changes how you see the people that are different than you. That's why it's called the new birth. It's like a whole new life. So radical. So do you know that? Are you doing that? Learning to repent of your goodness. And I just wanna tell you, some of you are big time older brothers. And maybe nobody knows it, but your spouse, they know. You don't like what I just said. And if what I just said makes you uncomfortable or makes you question or makes you a little bit angry, I'm just telling you, that's the sign from the Holy Spirit, you need to listen and you need to pray and you need to ask God to show you your heart so that it can be clean before him. Third thing is counsel and this would be just live in light of the gospel and man, I could have done a whole message on this so many things but I'll just give you two. It's just to highlight some stuff we've already said. Uh, first is obey because you're accepted and forgiven, not to earn those things. That's what it means. Counsel, live your life that way. Second, obey to get more of God, not more of God's stuff. Obey to delight in God and to become more like God. And then finally, reorientation. Be overwhelmed by the cost of forgiveness, what it cost to bring you home. See, the key difference between um, a Christian, a true follower, and a Pharisee is motivation. A Pharisee obeys God to get things. A Christian obeys God just to get God. And why? Why would a Christian do that? Well, it's because the Christian has seen what it cost God to bring you home. I mean, maybe you look at the story and you say, well, I don't think it cost the father anything. The kid came home, he had a desire to pay the father back, but the father wouldn't let him, so like it was free. No, it didn't cost the younger brother anything, but it cost someone else a lot. 
And at the very end of the story, Jesus gives us the hint. It's the last verse, verse 32, when the father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. Do you understand that's literally true? Why? Because the younger brother had liquidated and he'd spent his inheritance and now every single thing the father had, well, that belonged to the older brother. Every robe, every ring, every fattened calf was the older brother's. The younger brother could only be brought back into the family at the enormous cost and expense to the older brother, it's not free, it's never free. Someone always has to pay, and the older brother, he's furious about it. Why does Jesus put in such a nasty older brother? Well, he's showing the Pharisees what they look like. And in 2022, can you say it with me? Jesus is showing me what I look like. In fact, it'd be good for you to say that. Let's just do that. Jesus is showing me what I look like. See, what would, what would a true older brother have done? See, a true older brother would have seen the agony of the father and he would have said, Father, Father, I'll go out and look for my brother. Even if he's ruined everything, I'm gonna bring him home even at my own expense. Poor younger brother. He doesn't have a true older brother. But we do. Jesus Christ gives us a bad older brother so that we will long for the true one, the right one. See, we don't just need an older brother to go to the next town to find us. We need someone to come from heaven to earth We don't need an older brother who brings us into God's family just at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. And on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in the robe of his honor and righteousness. On the cross, Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time he never called him father because at that moment he was not being treated as a son so that you and I could be sons and daughters. And there he paid the debt, that debt that deep down we know all of us owe. He had everything the father had, but he shares it with us and he brings us home at enormous expense to himself. And when you see that, and to the degree that you see that, it will change everything in your heart about God. You won't be into self-discovery or moral conformity. You'll be a Christ follower. You will live by the gospel Now, some of you, your younger brother types, you've chosen that path of self-discovery, but you already know, right? It's not working. So the question today is, will you hear the gospel? Will you leave behind the sins that have only led to your destruction? Will you realize the Father's unconditional love for you no matter what you've done? Because you have a true older brother. And his name is Jesus. And he has done everything you need to bring you home. You simply need to repent and believe. The truth is, in a room like this, on a day like this, at a time like this, many of us are older brothers. After all, this is like church, right? And have you noticed older brothers tend to congregate at churches? See, and this parable really is to older brothers. I mean, why do you think it ends where it ends? 
What Jesus is doing in the story is inviting all of us older brothers to listen to his appeal and to put ourselves in the story and to respond. And there are a lot of you. And if you're here today and it's dawning on you that you have an older brother type of heart and you realize that because you're always angry. You're angry at the people who've hurt you and there are these classes of other people that you look down on and mainly you kind of feel like my life is just not going the way I want it to. And I've been good. I've done what God said. Why is it that everyone else seems like they're happy and I'm not? And the reason you're unhappy is because of your goodness. And the main thing between some of us and God is not so much our sin as much as it is our damnable good works. You're mad at people, you're mad at things, you're mad at the world because I have tried hard all my life and It's not going the way it should. There's an old hymn. Most of us don't know it. But part of the lyrics say this. Lay lay your deadly doing down. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone. Gloriously complete. And that's the gospel. We'll never stop being older brothers until we see the love of the Father and it melts our hearts. Our world doesn't get that. That's why we live in such an unforgiving age. Most people don't know the heart of God and the forgiveness of their sins. That's why so many people take so much delight in destroying the Justine Sackos of the world. The world doesn't understand the gospel and neither do some people who think they do. The gospel is all by grace. So will you today whether you're a younger or an older brother, take a good, hard, deep searching look at your heart. Will you ask yourself if you have truly come home? And if you have, will you ask if there's still some older brother-ishness in you? And will you repent? God is the gospel. He himself is the good news. He's the forgiving the pursuing, the grace-filled Father. And he's coming after you, and he loves you. So now we come to the Lord's table. And as our worship team uh, comes out, um, as you there in your seat prepare your heart to celebrate what God has done through Jesus to forgive our sins, Let's remind ourselves of what we're about to do. We, we come to this table to give thanks. Thanks for our forgiveness, bought with the blood and body of Jesus Christ. We come to this table to commune with God, to experience his love. We, we come to give witness to a watching world that we are gospel people and we have no righteousness in ourselves. It's all about Jesus and his love. And so with this in mind, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing. And as we sing and you hold the elements in your hands, just pray, worship, meditate, get ready to receive. Father, today we hear the good news about your forgiveness of our sins. Would you open our hearts to receive? And Lord, if there is anyone here who needs right now, maybe for the first time to turn from their sins in repentance, to turn to Jesus and his death on the cross for grace and salvation. Lord, would you open their hearts to 
see your beauty and your love. Father, would you help all of us to live not not out of our own so-called goodness, but out of your good news, the gospel. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, continue to worship now as we sing.